You may be seated. Well, before we get going with our sermon this morning and the text we're going to be considering, I do want to, to mention how absolutely good it is to be back with each one of you. Uh, if you're a visitor or if you haven't been here in a while, um, our family went uh, to England for the past two weeks. We had a great trip. It was very refreshing. Uh, we went to a couple of really good churches. We went to three uh, worship services, uh, two, two Sundays ago and then one last Sunday. And we just had a great time fellowshipping with other believers. We had a great time just getting to know uh, other Christians and brothers and sisters in Christ. But we really missed you guys. Uh, and I don't say that to, so you can pat yourself on the back or anything like that. We really, really missed you all. Uh, we're just reminded how good it is to be in a covenant body of believers, to where we hold one another accountable, to where we encourage one another, we know each other's faults, and yet we still love one another. That is priceless, and uh, we were really excited to come back. So we enjoyed our trip, but we're glad to be back. If you want to hear about our trip at all, or if you want to know about the churches that we visited, we went to Charles Spurgeon's former church, for instance, I'd love to talk to you afterwards and tell you more about that. But with that all being said, let's jump into our text this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Acts chapter 10, verses 17 through 33. And as you're turning to Acts chapter 10, where we're going to be taking a significant chunk of Scripture this morning, let me ask you a question that I want to get this uh, idea going in our minds. Have you ever prioritized something, or maybe I should put it this way, have you ever realized that you've prioritized something in your life more than what it should be? Have you ever prioritized something more in your life than what it should be? For instance, have you ever gone to the state fair, or any fair, for instance, and you realize that you love funnel cake a little bit too much, right? You go there, and all you can think of as you're going around to the different booths and everything is, where's the funnel cake? That's when you realize maybe it means a little bit too much to me. Now, if I'm being honest, which I always try to be honest in the pulpit, for me, it's not funnel cake. It's good. That's wonderful. But for me, I struggle with prioritizing pizza too much. Uh, my wife can, uh, she can say that I'm being honest here. If she would let me, I would eat pizza every single night. Doesn't matter if it's frozen pizza, delivery, doesn't matter. It's pizza. It's wonderful. I would eat it every single night. I realized I prioritize it a little bit too much. And we do this with a lot of things in our lives. For instance, for some of us, we're so connected with our phones or our tablets or our iPads or whatever it might be that if social media goes down or if our internet goes down and we're not able to use our phones or we're not able to get on our favorite social media website or something's not working, then we feel like something's completely wrong. What do you mean Facebook is down and I can't post or check on my friends? What do you mean Snapchat and Twitter and Instagram aren't working? What do you mean my internet's not working? We feel like something's going on that we can't figure it out. That's the idea that I'm trying to get us at, is prioritizing something in our lives really more than what it should be. What we're going to see this morning is there's going to be a man who's going to prioritize someone more than he should. And the idea of what we're going to talk about is how you and I do the exact same thing all the time. How we are just as guilty as the man in our text is just as guilty of doing, of worshiping that which we must not worship. The title of my sermon is Humanity Called to Worship and Holiness. Humanity Called to Worship 
and holiness. Our text is Acts chapter 10, verses 17 through 33. Will you follow along as I read our text this morning? Starting in verse 17, the author of Acts, Luke, tells us, Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. But get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited the men and gave them lodging. And on the next day he got up and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. And he talked with him. He entered, and as he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask, for what reason you have sent for me? Cornelius said, Four days ago to this hour I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here, present before God, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Let us pray as we consider God's word this morning. Father, as we consider this text, as we consider this notion of worship, our request is very simple. Will you help us to worship you rightly? We don't want to experience false worship this morning, and we certainly don't want to worship an idol. So, Lord, will you bring clarity of thought, clarity of words, and clarity of application? Will your Holy Spirit work in my heart and the hearts of each one of us here this morning? We ask this in your name. Amen. Now, I'm fully aware that we're jumping back into Acts chapter 10, which it was three weeks ago now that we took a step out of, and we had two preachers, two of our young men preach the past couple of weeks. I'm very aware that it's been a while, even if you were here last, uh, when we were here in Acts chapter 10, it might be a while for us to think, okay, what's happening in Acts chapter 10? We might remember that Peter had a vision. We might remember that Cornelius had a vision. But we're trying to get back into our minds what's happening here in our text. And I'm sure that someone might be here and thinking, oh my goodness, 
That's a lot of verses that we're going to be covering this morning. It is, but a lot of it is just simply review. A lot of these verses are just telling us what we already know, and therefore we can breeze by them a little bit more quickly. In verses 17 through 24 of Acts chapter 10, we see that more or less there's this uh, rehashing or synopsis of what's already happened. We're told in verses 17 and 18 that that the people that Cornelius had sent after receiving his vision from the angel arrive here in Joppa. These servants and this soldier arrive, and we saw that in verse 7 and 8 a couple weeks ago, about a month ago now, that those people were sent out by Cornelius to find this man, Peter. We're told here that in verses 17 and 18 that these men likely had no problem finding Peter, Simon Peter and Simon the Tanner's house, which again is another testament that God gave such clear, direct instructions. They were able to ask questions and find exactly where this man Peter was. In verses 19 and 20, we see that Peter has a second vision, which more or less gives us the reasoning for why Peter would go with these strange men that show up at his door. Without verses 19 and 20, we might ask ourselves, why is Peter going with these strangers? He's in Joppa. They're wanting him to go to Caesarea to meet this man Cornelius. He's never met him before. Why would he go and do that? In our culture, we'd say, no, 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 no. I don't know you. I don't trust you. And yet with Peter, in verses 19 and 20, he has another vision. This is the second vision. The first vision that we saw uh, in verses 9 through 16 told us that Peter is learning by God that there's nothing that's unholy if God calls it holy. And this is something that Peter is learning. It's going to take him a while to learn. But he receives this second vision. And this second vision is God saying, go with these men. Go with them because I have a purpose for what you're doing. And so at this point, Peter is willing, after these two visions, to follow with whatever God tells him to do. And so in verse 20, we see that Peter gives lodging to these men. I'm sorry, in verse 23, he gives them lodging, and then the next day he sets out with these men. I think a a quick application here is maybe good as we're considering just kind of these historical verses, helping the story continue along. I think it's necessary for us to see something about God here, and especially we see this in verse 20. Look at verse 20, and look at what Peter's told. He's told that he's supposed to go and accompany these men without misgivings. And then God says this to Peter, For I have sent them myself. I love that because an application that we need to see here very quickly as we're going through this text is that God is actively at work in tremendous ways. We need to be seeing that. These men did not come on their own initiative to find Peter. In fact, we're even told these men did not come on Cornelius's initiative. Though we were told in verses 7 and 8, he sent them. But what we see here in verse 20 is that God says, I sent them. I simply cannot understand any Christian who views God as some passive God who's just sitting up there like an old grandfather in a rocking chair who spun the world, got it going, and said, I wonder what the humans are going to do next. That's not God. That's heresy. Our God is not passively sitting back wondering what you and I are going to do next, if we're going to get it right or if we're going to get it wrong. God is actively at work. 
He's doing all of these tremendous ways. He is the one who sent these men to Peter. And if you know the story, you know what's going to happen. You know that Cornelius is going to come to know Christ, which means, this is so beautiful, God is doing all, everything necessary. He's doing all these things necessary to bring an unbeliever to salvation in Jesus Christ. God is the worker behind all of it. That means every human interaction. That means every situation in your life. That means all things that you are encountering in this life, in some way, God's providence is behind it. God is using that commercial that you saw on TV yesterday. He's using that conversation that you had with a friend. He's using that Bible passage that you read the other day. And he's even using that thought, as long as that thought did not lead to sin, he is using that for his purposes and for his glory. Now, an honest thinker might say, "Uh, really? Is that true? Because I can think of some problems with that. That creates issues in my mind. Is God really behind all things in this world? Because there's some really terrible things that happen in this world. Is God behind all of that? If that's a question that you have, let me shamelessly put a plug in here for Sunday night study. Starting tonight at 5.15, we are starting a three-week study, God's will versus man's will. And we are going to talk about God's will tonight. Is God behind all things? Or are there things outside of his will? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. I cannot stress enough. I was telling Sadie, even in England, I was so excited to be back here, but I was excited for tonight to start our Sunday night study. So if you don't have plans tonight, and even if you do have plans tonight, break them. (laughs) I mean, I'm saying that. Just don't break plans if you're like babysitting kids or something. They need you. But if you don't have plans and if you're available, come tonight, 5.15 to 6.15, and you will not regret it. But we see this here in our text, do we not? God's the one who's initiating all things. God's not passive. He's active. He's actively working for his good and for his glory. And we see through this that God's timing is perfect. We continue here in verses 21 to 23, more or less concluding this historical section. We see that Cornelius' ambassadors tell us a couple of interesting things. One, do you see in verse 22 how Cornelius's ambassadors describe Cornelius again as what we had seen earlier in the chat earlier in our chapter? We're told that Cornelius again is a righteous man. We're told that he's a God-fearing man. We're told that he gives alms to the Jews or that he's well thought of by the Jews and that he prays. We're told the same things that we had learned about Cornelius previously. That's important going forward. Don't forget, this is the second time in the chapter, we're told how good of a man Cornelius is. But also notice here in verse 22 that there's this word from Cornelius' servants about a message. Peter, we've come to you because you have a message from God for Cornelius. Let me ask you this question. Where in that vision to Cornelius that you see back in verses 7 and 8, where in that vision do you see anything about Peter having a message? The angel doesn't say that, does he? He just says, go find Peter and bring him back to you. But he doesn't say anything about a message. The idea here is that God is so 
providentially and sovereignly working in all of these lives that Cornelius knows, I need this man because he's going to do something for me. And at the exact same time, Peter is receiving a vision that's going to help him be able to communicate the gospel. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done it. And that's going to be clear in the verses going forward. Peter would not have communicated the gospel. He wouldn't have done it. He would have followed Old Testament law and not mixed with the Gentiles. But God was sovereignly at work, perfectly in his timing, that this one person, Cornelius, is needing to hear about God. And he knows that Peter's the one to do that. And on this other hand, in another city, Peter learns, hey, I need to tell all people about Christ, not just the the Jews, but the Gentiles also. God's timing is perfect. And we need to hear that as well. You and I need to hear, as Christians, God's timing is perfect. God does not make mistakes in his timing. Now that's difficult for us to hear because if you're like me, you've prayed at times in your life and it seems like God has not answered those prayers. Certainly not in the timing that you want. But listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 27, 14. He says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Friends, what we must see from this text and through all of Scripture is God's timing is not random, it's not mysterious, it's perfect. And we can trust Him. We can trust God's providential timing. But then going into verses 24 and 25, after Peter has let these people stay with him, and, and after he then accompanies them to Caesarea, we see what I would consider the crux of the passage. We see in verse 24, and I'm going to call this the second part of my sermon. This is going to be the big, uh, I would say, meat of the sermon, the human desire to worship. Notice what we see here in verse 24. We see some details, don't we? Cornelius is there in Caesarea. Peter and Cornelius' servants, they're coming to him, and we're told a few interesting things. Cornelius is not alone waiting for Peter. What are we told? Verse 24. Cornelius is waiting for them, but notice, he had called together his relatives and his close friends. Ah, now that's significant. Why? Why would he do that? And notice, this is in a day and age where they don't have telephones, they don't have texting, they don't even have telegrams. So it's not like the servants can call Cornelius and say, hey boss, we're coming home, we're 10 miles away, you might want to get everybody together now. He would not have known when they would have arrived. And yet, he has gotten all of his friends, all of his family together, and they are there waiting for Peter. They are waiting because something significant, they believe, is going to happen. What they expect is that Peter will say something to change their lives. And that's exactly what Cornelius tells Peter in verses 30 through 33. I know I'm jumping a little bit ahead. We're going to come back. But in verses 30 through 33, isn't that what Cornelius says? He recounts the vision that he had had. He says, I'm ready now. We're waiting. We're ready for whatever you're going to tell us. He says in verse 33 that they're prepared to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. What we're seeing here is that Cornelius is putting heavy emphasis on whatever this man Peter is going to be saying. And we see that very clearly in verse 30 through 33, but when we go back in to verse 24 and 25, we see that he's joined everyone together, and then in verse 25, notice what we're told. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him 
and fell at his feet and worshipped him. The Greek word there, worship, that's translated in my Bible, it's this idea of prostrated in reverence. Now, you and I are not from a country where we think very highly of kings and queens. Sadie and I just went to a country where they do think very highly of kings and queens. And this idea of when you would come before a sovereign, a monarch, right? If you go before the queen, you don't just stride up there saying, hey, how you doing? You go up there and you bow low. You humble yourself. I am not worthy. Your power, queen, is greater than mine. It is me who is honored by your presence, not you honored by mine. And that is the idea here. That what Cornelius is doing, he is humbling himself before a man. That's what he's doing. A man has come before him, and he is worshiping him. He's prostrating himself in reverence, humbling himself. Now, I think there's two things we need to see here. Two things that we must see. The first of which is, if there's any uncertainty whether Cornelius knows Christ in salvation... If there's any uncertainty whether this man is a Christian, we have complete affirmation he doesn't. Right? Look at verse 25. Is that what a Christian does? Does a Christian who has been changed by Christ, who is humbly submitting to Christ alone, worship a man? Well, no. That's not what it should be. And yet that's what Cornelius is doing. But notice this. Remember a few moments ago I said, pay attention to the description of Cornelius. What were we told about Cornelius? That he's a jerk? That he's mean? That he's a sinner? That he does terrible things and everybody hates him? He's a good moral man. He's an upstanding man. He would be what any of us would consider a wonderful person, a good, upstanding citizen of society. And probably for many of us, we would say, this man's a Christian. He's more Christian than I am. Notice what we're told. He fears God. He gives charitably. He prays to God. And yet, he's an unbeliever. Now, that might cause concern in your mind. Wait, how can a person fear God and yet be not saved? How can a person give charitably, to, especially to, to God's people, the Jews, and And then still not be saved? And how can someone pray to God and not be saved? How is any of that possible? Well, it's possible because Scripture says so. How can you fear God and not be saved? Let me subscribe to you. James chapter 2, verse 19. We're told that demons also believe, and what? They shudder. Fear. They fear God. And they believe in God. And yet, they are not saved. So, so just believing in God, fearing God is not enough? Absolutely right, it's not enough. What about doing good works? What about giving of myself, my time, my money, my things? Romans chapter 4 verse 4 says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited to him as favor. Your wages aren't enough. The good things that you do are not enough. Living a good moral life is not enough. That's not enough to be a Christian. What about praying? Surely if I pray to the Lord, surely that makes me right with God. Well, in John chapter 9, verse 31, a formerly blind man was healed by Jesus, and this is what he testified, saying, we know that God does not hear sinners. God 
doesn't hear the prayers, the cries, the pleas of sinners. He doesn't. He only hears his people. So praying, therefore, is not enough. So what we need to be seeing here with this first observation by Cornelius worshiping Peter is that any external morality not preceded by internal gospel transformation means nothing. Let me repeat that. And if you're taking notes, try to get this down. Any external morality, doing good things, living a good life, being a good person, if it's not preceded first by gospel transformation means nothing. That means coming to church means nothing without internal gospel transformation. Without submitting yourself to Christ and repenting, confessing of your sin and coming to him in faith and believing and trusting that he died for you on the cross for your sins, if that hasn't happened, if you have not responded to Christ in that regard and everything in your life has changed because of that, then you do not know Jesus Christ. That is what we're seeing here with Cornelius. He doesn't know Christ, therefore he doesn't know God. He fears God, but he doesn't know him. He tries to obey God by giving charitably and praying, but he doesn't know him. I wonder, are any of us here in that same boat with Cornelius? Do we do the right and good things? Do we live good moral lives? And yet we don't know Christ. We give uh, lip service to him, but we don't know him. That's what we're seeing here with Cornelius. But secondly, and this is going to be this, the thrust of our, the rest of our time together, what we see here, verse 25, Cornelius worshiping Peter is that Cornelius, like you and me, Cornelius wanted to worship that which he could see and understand rather than what he couldn't see and what he couldn't understand. Oh, this is so prototypical of all of humanity, including and especially myself and you as well. We want to, just like Cornelius, worship what we see, what we feel, what we can smell, what we can comprehend. And yet, if there's something that we can't see, we can't fully comprehend, I don't know about that, right? And so what we do is we create idols. And that's what idolatry is. We see something that we feel we have power over. We feel that we have control over. And therefore, we desire that over the one who has given all of good things. That is the definition of idolatry. We look at the created and we say, instead of worshiping the creator who's given the created, I'm going to worship the created. Romans chapter 1 talks about this, doesn't it? Verses 22 and 23 says that they exchange, they being sinners, they being you and me before salvation, exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That's Romans 1.23. What is that talking about? We We will replace God with anything other than God. We who were created to worship, worship anything other than God. And friends, we're all guilty of this. Let me prove that to you. In Revelation chapter 22, near the very end of the Bible, John the Apostle, it's not John the Baptist, John the Apostle, 
who wrote multiple books, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation. This is what we're told in Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9. This is a believer, John knew Christ, and yet listened to his idolatry. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. This is the revelation of the end times. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel. John, you were with Jesus. You walked and learned from Jesus. And he fell down at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Verse 9, the angel said to me, don't do that. I love that. He's rebuking him. Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. These two last words say everything. Worship God. Don't worship anything that's created. Worship the one who is more powerful over everything. And yet you and I, we're just like Cornelius. We want to worship the things that we see and comprehend when in reality, if you are in Christ, you are called to worship a God that you will never fully comprehend. And you ask, how can I do that? If I don't see God and I can't comprehend him fully, how then can I worship him? I'll tell you, it's very simply, it's through faith. That's what faith is. That's what faith is. Faith in God's promises, faith in God's goodness, faith in God's mercy and grace given to us because of all that he's done for us through Christ. That is what we are called to do. And yet Cornelius is showing us an example of what not to do. Now, I think it's important at this point to say very clearly Cornelius was wrong in worshiping Peter. I think it's clear to say that John the Apostle in Revelation 22 was wrong. But if we're honest, and if we're honestly reading through Scripture, we realize these men are not alone in worshiping idols in their lives for a time. You could look to just about any biblical figure outside of Christ and say for a specific time in their life they worshiped some sort of an idol. You could look to the Israelites who obeyed God in many ways and did wonderful things, and yet when they went into the desert, what did they do? They made a golden calf. We could look to, again, John the Apostle, who, again, uh, bowed down to this angel and worshiped this angel. We could even look to Peter himself. Peter made an idol. Three times he denied Christ. Why? Because he made an idol out of his self-preservation. We see Cornelius making an idol out of Peter. And I think at this point, we need to be asking ourselves, what are the idols in our lives? Are we any better than all of these biblical figures? Are you better than John the Apostle? Am I better than Peter? I know I'm not. So the question that must be asked are, what are the idols that are in my life? What I'm going to do is I'm going to finish this sermon by giving four areas of idolatry. And I think if we're honest, each one of these four areas hit each of us. I know that they hit me. And then we're going to conclude with two responses. My goal is for us to see in our lives, I follow idolatry. I make idols in my life, and therefore I must do something about it. And we're going to see what that is. So four areas of idols that we see in our lives. The very first of which, the very first of which, and it's a big one, is pleasure. The first area of idolatry that you and I have in our lives is that we make pleasure 
an idol. Now, I know this is a difficult thing to talk about, but it's absolutely necessary for us to talk about. And let me get into a little bit of specifics. For some of us, our idol of pleasure might be considered vices. That might be for some of us. Uh, let's be honest here. Some of you struggle with alcohol. In some way, alcohol, either past or in your present, is an idol for you. It means too much to you. Maybe for others of you, it might be pornography or masturbation. It might be illegal drugs. It might be something that you just can't seem to get over. Something that means too much to you. It's too much. That's an idol in your life. Now, I can imagine that for some of us here, maybe we don't struggle with the things I just mentioned, and we might say, whew, okay, good. He's not going to talk about any things that I might be struggling with. Maybe yours, idol, is not those big, obvious sins, and you, they might just be smaller sins. And we try to excuse these seemingly smaller sins away, don't we? Perhaps your sin of idolatry is gluttony. Food means too much to you. Let me just step aside for a second. I don't know why I step aside. Let me just be honest with you. My wife can back me up on this. I struggle with this sin, okay? I'm not, I'm not just trying to, to make you all feel bad. This is for me. I've struggled with gluttony in my life. And maybe you have too. Food means too much to you. It has to me. Maybe an idol in your life is you have to be in the know. You love being the first person to hear something. You want to be the one who knows something before somebody else does. And you love gossip. That's idolatry. Perhaps you like getting away with things. You get a rush when you get away with something. It doesn't have to be stealing, but you get away with something. And you do it deceitfully. I pitted mom and dad against one another and I got what I wanted. Or I, my boss didn't catch what I was doing and I got away with it. That's idolatry. Maybe for some of us, we're lazy. We don't think we are, but we come home from work or we finish up the things we've done in the day and we think we deserve a long rest. We think that we deserve to take time off where we can just check out. That can become idolatry, and it is for many of us. And for others of us, mindless entertainment is idolatry. It's idolatry of pleasure. We love becoming thoughtless zombies. We will watch a movie for hours and not think about anything. It's an escape. It's almost like a drug, isn't it? It gets us away from our lives. When we're watching that movie, we don't think of our problems. We love just scrolling through social media. We love just watching something, playing video games, doing anything to take us away from our problems. But I can imagine that some of us still might be here and say, well, that's not me. You've missed me on every account. Well, then, let us get all of our toes on this one. Still talking about the idols of pleasure. For all of us, we take good, godly pleasures, and there are many good, godly pleasures in this life. Very good, many things. But we take those good, godly pleasures and we prioritize them over the Lord. A good, godly pleasure like spending time with family and friends, we can prioritize that over God. Going on a vacation and spending time away, we can prioritize that over God. Even going to church, a good, godly pleasure that we should all partake in and enjoy doing, we can even make that even higher than God. And that 
is idolatry. Did you know that coming to church could actually be idolatry if in your heart it means more to you than Christ? That's what we do. We take pleasure, whether it's bad pleasure or good pleasure, and we want more. We want more. And it doesn't take us to Christ. It doesn't lead us to praising the Lord. It leads us to praise ourselves and the things that we're doing. That is our first type of idolatry. That is the sins of pleasure. But we move on to the second. Let me be so bold as to list a second type of idolatry that you and I have in our lives. And that is this notion of safety and security. We follow the idolatrous way of believing and prioritizing and prizing safety and security. When Sadie and I lived in Louisville when I was in seminary, I used to house sit for an older woman, wonderful, wonderful woman. Uh, we would house sit for, for her a lot of times, a couple times a year, sometimes three times a year. And this woman is wonderful. I mean, she's like a grandmother to me in, in many respects. But she cared so much about her property. She had a big estate that she had everything she could to make sure that her things were protected. So floodlights everywhere on her property. She had an up-to-date security system. If you weren't supposed to be there, you weren't going to be in there. And the biggest thing was she would never leave the house without somebody being in the house overnight. So if she was gone, even for one night, somebody had to be there. There was even one time when she thought she heard a sound outside. and She called me over at, I think, 9 o'clock at night, and I spent the night over there just to make sure that nobody broke into her house. Now, you might consider that paranoia, and it might be. And you might say, well, goodness, I don't have a large estate. I don't have that, so obviously this idolatry is not for me. Well, no, you might not have an estate But a lot of times, the idolatry of safety and security for us boils down to one little thing, a little list of numbers, your net worth. That's where we get our safety and security, isn't it? What do we have in our bank account, our savings account, our checking account, our retirement, our IRAs, our pension? Do we have enough to support the lifestyle or do the things that we want to do? If we do, we feel good. I have enough money. And if we don't, what can I do to get enough money? What can I do to get to that point in my life of making sure that I can do all that I need to do? That is idolatry. It's not a bad thing to work hard. It's not a bad thing to save your wages. But it is a bad thing when your safety and security comes from your wages. Now, I can imagine, again, somebody else might be here and say, I'm poor. I don't have any of that. I live paycheck to paycheck. I don't have a savings. I don't have a pension. I don't have retirement. So I don't have any of this. Well, no, maybe not. But is your safety and security possibly in the fact that you're a low-income family? It's weird, but that's, that's what some people might think. Or is your safety and security in a relationship in your life? You have a relationship and that makes you feel better about yourself. Is your safety and security in your future plans of what you're going to do with your life or what's going to happen in your life? Hopefully, what's being clear here is if you prioritize your safety and security and assurance in this life and the next with anything other than Christ, it's idolatry. Thirdly, the third type of idols out of four is feelings. And this is another big one. You and I so frequently... We make idols out of our feelings. In fact, let me be so bold. I know myself, I can say this. We are slaves 
to our feelings. Let me prove this to you. Has there ever been a time where it just feels good to be mad? I mean, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but you've had this experience. I know I have. For whatever reason, maybe a lot of things have been going on. It just feels good to, ugh, just mad. It's because of something at work or something with my family or something that happened. It just feels good to get angry. And maybe we go off on our own and we stomp around or I don't know what we do. But we get really mad and it feels good to feel mad. Or adversely, doesn't it sometimes feel good to feel sad? It's the weirdest thing. We get sad and we don't really want to be cheered up. We want to stay sad. And so we'll write sad posts on Facebook. We want people to encourage us and and give us sorrowful responses. We like feeling sad. We like following that emotion. Or maybe we pursue happiness. Oh, goodness. Is this not for all of us? We pursue happiness because that's all we want. We are slaves to feeling a certain way. And actually what becomes what we think we're in control of actually begins to control us. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Now no feeling can be relied on to last in its full intensity or even last at all. Knowledge can last, habits can last, but feelings come and go. Well, C.S. Lewis, where did you get that? Where did you learn that from the Bible? Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Proverbs 28.26 says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. If you trust in your own feelings and your own heart, you're a fool. I'm a fool. And he concludes by saying, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. It's this idea. If in your pursuit of any emotion, if your pursuit of any emotion is not for the purpose of glorifying and praising God, it is sin. If your anger doesn't bring you to glorifying God, it's sin. Fathers, take note. Take note. I just came back from a two-week vacation with a baby. I know what it's like to be angry at your child, okay? Because he doesn't do what you want him to do, especially at 11 months old. That's not a righteous anger that he's keeping me up. That's not a righteous anger. That's a selfish anger. That's my, that's my sin. It's my idolatry of my wants and needs. Mom's the same thing. And if you don't have children, there are times when your anger is not justified as well. Feelings so often can be idols. But then fourthly and finally, and I think all of what I've talked about of idolatry culminates with this fourth and final. We follow the idol of pleasure. We follow the idol of safety and security. And we follow the idol of feelings. But it all boils down to fourth and finally, the idol of ourselves. And this is what we really have to hammer home on. This was Cornelius' problem, and this is our problem as well. Cornelius was worshiping himself. And you and I do the same thing. Cornelius was worshiping himself because he thought he was going to receive something great for himself. He was right, but he didn't understand what it was going to be. But you and I do the same thing. We don't need Peter standing in front of us to worship ourselves. We don't need a golden calf in order to have idolatry. We don't need any sort of crucifix, any sort of precious mineral or precious stone. What we need in order for idolatry is one thing. 
It's you. And it's me. All I need for idolatry is me. All you need is you. That's it. We need nothing else. We're like the little child, right? Okay, so I'm a father. I have 11, almost 12-month, almost a year-old son. Let me tell you, I did not teach that boy to have uh, uh, hissy fits or to, to, to get angry and upset when we try to do things or, or make him eat something that he doesn't want to eat. Nobody had to teach my son that if he doesn't like broccoli, he can throw it on the ground. And he does that. He's to that stage. He throws things away that he doesn't want. If he doesn't want to go to bed, guess what he does? He doesn't say, Mom and Dad, please don't let me go to bed. I don't want to. He cries. Why? He's throwing a temper tantrum. Because he says, I want what I want. I mean, this is something that comes to us from birth. From birth, we want what we want. We want it to be for ourselves. I don't like this, therefore I'm going to cry. I'm going to put a, a fuss up. And we do the exact same thing. When sin that is born when we are born in us, it just matures in our hearts. And instead of you and I throwing fits and and screaming and crying like we did as a baby, what you and I do when we become adults is we worship ourselves with everything we have. You know what's tragic? Is an adult who only lives for himself or herself. How do they spend their time? On their things that they love to do. Their hobbies their pleasures, their joys. That's tragic. That's the same thing as my son crying when he doesn't get his way. The only difference is they're able to do what they want. It's tragic when an adult spends their money on just the things that they want to do. That's tragic. It's tragic when a person says, I want this in my life. I hear this all the time. I only want to have two children. Why? Did God tell you in direct specific revelation that you're only supposed to have two children? Did God tell you you're not supposed to have any children? Or should we be saying as Christians, I'm open to whatever God says? What we do, friends, please hear this as clearly as possible, is we say what we want, what we desire, and we portray that to everything else. We worship ourselves. We need to stop saying, I want this, I want that, or we want this. The question has to be, what does God want? And if that's not our question, then, friends, we're living in idolatry. I love the way that John Piper puts this in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. Powerful words, powerful words. And if you haven't read this book, Don't Waste Your Life, I really would highly recommend it. I have a couple of copies that if you're serious about wanting to read it, please talk to me. He has this notion that yours and my life is not about ourselves. It's not about us, it's about God. Piper says, God created me and you to live with a single, all-embracing, all-transforming passion, namely a passion to glorify God by enjoying and displaying his supreme excellence in all the spheres of life. And elsewhere, later in the book, he says this, and please hear these words. Life is wasted. Life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross, if we do not cherish it for the treasure that it is and cleave to it as the highest price of every pleasure and the deepest comfort in every pain. What was once foolishness to us, a crucified God, must become our wisdom and our power and our only boast in this world. When talking about the sin of making ourselves an idol, 
Christian, we must understand your life is not your own. Don't believe the lie from Satan himself that your life is about you. It's not. Listen to 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. That's Christ's life. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Christians, don't follow what Cornelius did. Don't worship anything other than the Lord. Your life has been bought with the price of Christ's life. Don't worship yourself, but worship the Lord. Well, this leads us, in our conclusion, to one final question. My prayer is at this point, if you're like me, you're saying to yourself, being honest with yourself, the Spirit's working in your heart enough to the point that you say, okay, I have idols in my life. I'm guilty. The stamp of guilt is all over me. I have, I have idols. I'm guilty of the sin of idolatry. The one last question for us to ask in closing is, what do I do now? If this is true, that the things that we have talked about are by God's Spirit, He's brought into your heart other things that we haven't even talked about that are in your life, you've realized, I'm guilty of this. The only question that remains is, what do I do? Friends, the gospel demands a response each and every time it's presented. Each and every time we hear the gospel, we either agree with it and obey with it, or we disagree with it and we disobey it. The question is, for us this morning, what are we going to do? Are we going to respond with obedience to the gospel? If so, what do we do with our idols? What do we do with these great big golden calves that have been born up in our hearts and that we're holding on to? The answer is actually shockingly simple, and it's in our text. The last thing is verse 26 through 29. What does Peter do when Cornelius bows and worships him? He smashes it. I love it. Verse 26. Peter raised Cornelius up. Don't worship me. I'm just a man. And then what does he do next? In verses 28, he presents the truth. Yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That's the gospel. And then in verse 34, he preaches the gospel. So, two final things, really quickly. Don't check out yet. Two really quick things. If you have identified by God's mercy in your life idols that you have in your heart, two things must be done. First, you must smash that idol. Smash it. Destroy it. Put it to smithereens. Is that not what Peter did? Cornelius bows down before Peter. And what does Peter do? Get up! Don't stay down there. Don't worship me. I'm not worthy. He smashed the idol. Is that not what Jesus says? In Matthew chapter 5. I love what Jesus says. Jesus talks about the severity of smashing an idol. In Matthew 5, verse 30, he says, If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Wait, wait, Jesus, I'm sorry. I thought that this Sermon on the Mount was all about love and turning the other cheek and the Beatitudes and the Golden Rule and all of these wonderful, kind things. And yet you're telling me, Jesus, that I identify I'm prioritizing something in my life more than Christ and you're saying, cut it off? Absolutely. 
Let me ask you this. What happened to the golden calf? After Moses came down with Mount Sinai, the law of God sees the sin of the people. What happens in Exodus 32? The golden calf is destroyed. It's not set aside as a token of remembrance. It's destroyed. Done away with. What about King Josiah? When he became king over Israel, they had forgotten God's word. They were false idols. And in 2 Kings 23, he destroyed them. Friends, do not forget. If you identify idolatry in your life, it continues to be idolatry unless you smash it and you destroy it and you are done with it. If you let it, even just a sliver, remain in your heart, I'll destroy it except for a little bit, you're holding on to it. And it's still idolatry. And you're still guilty of sin before God. We smash it and it's replaced by truth. And this is the second thing. We smash the idols We replace it by truth. That's what Peter did. He presented God's word, and that's what what we must do as well. Friends, there is hope. If you're like me, you've had idols in your life, and you still have idols in your life. Sometimes they're big idols that are at the forefront of your mind, and sometimes they're in the back. But if you're like me, I've struggled with sin before in many grievous ways. I thought I was isolated. I thought that there wasn't any hope. The only hope for a sinner enslaved to his or her idolatry is having honesty and opening before God by smashing the idols, coming before the Lord and saying, fill me with your mercy and truth. Going to other Christians to help identify what do you see in my life and replacing it with godliness, holiness, righteousness, and being more like Christ. Friend, you're not isolated. You have hope. There is certainty. Therefore, worship the Lord with your life. Don't live for yourself. Don't live for your pleasures. Don't live for your feelings. Don't live for the things that you think you want and need. Instead, live for the Lord. Friends, if you don't know this Christ, if you've realized that the idols are actually what you're worshiping, then right now, this morning, you must come to Christ in salvation because there might not be another opportunity in your life. And if you are a Christian, and you have identified, I'm still sinning in this way, then confess and repent before your Lord and Savior this morning. And may we, God's people, be ever changed that we're always smashing idols and always responding with truth, always responding with the grace of God, and always living more like Christ and less like the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word this morning from Acts chapter 10. Thank you for the example that Cornelius set before us of what not to do. And as we know at the end of the story, this man is going to come to know you in salvation. What a firm reminder that every Christian makes mistakes. We always do things that we shouldn't do, but yet that's not the realm that we live in. We don't continue excusing our sin, but we come to you in repentance. Come to you confessing the things that we have done wrong and asking for forgiveness. And then going and living like Christ. So Lord, will you work in our hearts this morning? Will you continue working in my heart? Will you continue to convict me of my sin and make me more holy? Father, will you work in this body of believers? And may we live for your glory in all that we say and do. In your name, amen. Our song of response is hymn number